So it is the social capital of our world. It is the thing that gives you status probably like few things in society today. It is the marker by which we know we are somebody or not. Social media followers. How many people do you have following you on Instagram or Twitter? How many friends or likes or whatever Facebook does now? How many do you have? What's the most likes you have ever received on a social media post? I was curious who actually has the most followers on social media, so I did a little research. So Instagram. The person with the most followers on Instagram is Cristiano Ronaldo with 153 million followers. If you have no idea who that is, you obviously don't follow soccer. Portuguese soccer player. On Twitter, Katy Perry, pop singer, 106 million. Facebook, once again, Cristiano Ronaldo. Must be good to be a Portuguese soccer player. He has 122 million followers. I'm guessing you have some catching up to do. Social media followers... There is something interesting about the capital that that can give, at least perceived capital that it can give to us. How many of you, just be honest, have ever looked at your social media following and felt a little bit disappointed you didn't have more people following you? In some way, you sort of judged yourself. Like, am I not cool enough? Do, do, do people not like me? Or maybe you actually posted something and you were expecting a lot more likes. You thought, hey, this is a brilliant picture or this is a brilliant post. And you looked at it and you're like, man, no one's liking this post. People must not like me. Just be honest. How often has that happened? I mean, social media following has such capital. There's this whole new category of like celebrity and job that you can have. Social media influencer. Have you heard about this? Like, if you have enough followers on Instagram, you can take videos of yourself just doing normal things. Like, hey, here's me baking a cake. Here's me changing the oil. Here's me tying my shoes. And just put a cool filter on it and dress really trendy, and you'll have people thinking, wow, that's amazing. Look how they tie their shoes. I'm going to do it just like you. Okay, we can make fun of social media. It's easy to do that. And this is, honestly, this is not a social media rant. I just want to draw our attention to the way we think about following in our culture. So it could be very easy for us to assume and be shaped by how our culture sees following. Because in many ways, what social media has done is it sort of unlocked some of the darkness in our hearts and allowed us to define down what it means to follow. Because on social media, following is easy. With a click of a button or with a like, I'm following somebody. No commitment on my part. No cost, or at least maybe minimal cost if you sign up for a membership fee. There's no upsetting of my life and my agenda. All I have to do is read or watch. And if there's any doing involved, I can do that on my own terms. And so there are very broken ways that we can think about following that have been shaped. In some ways, gas has been poured on the fire in our culture as we think about what it means to follow. And so I use the example of social media to get us to do a little bit of reflecting. Reflecting on the ways that we follow in some broken ways. And this is especially important in light of the truth that Jesus said, follow me. So if you are new or newer to First City, we are currently in a series going through the Gospel of Mark. 
And all throughout this gospel, Mark holds up two very big and important questions for us. The first is, who is Jesus? And the second is, will you follow him? And it's that second question that I want to spend some time focusing on this morning. Now, that question is before us every Sunday, will you follow Jesus? But I want to look at it with particular closeness this morning. Jesus says to you, follow me, and will you follow him? And what does that mean to be a follower of Christ? So from our passage in Mark 3, I want to do three things. First, I want to spend some time reflecting on who Jesus calls to follow him. And the reason I want to do this is because I think we can have some um, misunderstanding about the types of people that Jesus calls to follow him. Second, I want to talk about and reflect on how we respond to Jesus when he calls us to follow him. We need to be mindful of how we respond because whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, we're all prone to the same temptations. And third, I want to talk about what Jesus does with those who follow him. I want to give us hope in the power of Jesus this morning. I want to see how that hope compels us to go and share the gospel with other people. So those are three things we're going to reflect on this morning. So let's spend our first few minutes discussing who Jesus calls, what type of person Jesus calls. So in Mark 3, 13 and through 19, Jesus calls the 12. These are the, the 12 closest disciples to him. He had a lot of other people following him, but these were, were his tightest crew. And I wonder what you think of the people Jesus called. Or what types of people did Jesus call the closest to him? How do you, what do you assume those, those dudes are? But let me ask it this way. If you were going to assemble your 12 closest friends or followers, that the people whose association with you most defines your status and your reputation, that the people who are going to most help you accomplish your goals, what kind of people would you gather to yourself? I'm guessing we would try to find some people who are wealthy and well-connected, people who are probably successful in their careers, people who perhaps were famous and people who probably had a good moral reputation because those are the kinds of people that are going to boost our efforts, boost our status, help us accomplish our goals. What kind of dudes did Jesus choose? Well, you have guys like Simon, who also is named Peter, and James and John. In Mark 1, 16 through 20, we get a, a snapshot of when Jesus actually goes up and calls these guys to follow him. And here's what we learn about these guys. They're fishermen. They're blue collar, not educated, not wealthy, not well connected, just kind of average dudes. And what we also learn from these guys throughout the gospel and in the other pages of scripture is they all three had an issue with anger. Like when the authorities come to arrest Jesus, Peter goes after one of them with a sword and he wasn't aiming for the guy's ear. John and James. Their nickname, Sons of Thunder, do you know where they got that name? It's because they wanted Jesus to rain napalm down on a Samaritan village when they wouldn't follow Jesus. These guys were also guys that had racist tendencies. James and John wanted to destroy the Samaritans, and this is how Jews thought of Samaritans. They're half-breeds. They're racially impure. So yeah, wipe them all out. Peter, we see in the book of Acts and in the book of Galatians, had an issue with Gentiles. 
All three of them were cowards too. After telling Jesus over and over again, I will never, I will never leave you, Jesus. Three times he denies Jesus. James and John, when they want to put in their application for sitting at Jesus' right hand and their left hand, do they go and ask Jesus themselves? No, they go get their mom to do it. (laughs) Cowards, all of them. Guys with racial bigotry, angry. And then you have Matthew, who's also called Levi. In Mark 2, 13 and 14, we see Jesus calling Matthew, and we learn Matthew is a tax collector. Tax collectors were Jews who Romans hired to collect taxes from their own people. They were hated, probably more than any other group among the Jews. They were seen as traitors. You're working for the enemy. They were also, they often would extort money from their own people. And so tax collectors, these guys were ostracized. They might have been wealthy, but the Jews hated them. And here's Jesus saying, hey, come follow me. And then you have Simon the Zealot. See, zealots violently opposed Rome. They were domestic terrorists. And you know who they hated more than anyone? Tax collectors. Jesus calls both of them to his crew. So so let me ask you again, if you were to assemble the 12 closest friends and followers that were going to bolster your reputation, that were going to help you accomplish your goals, who are you going to call to you? Are you going to call the factory worker or the farmer or the mechanic who has anger problems and has racist tendencies? Are you going to call the corrupt liberal bureaucrat who puts a system of oppression over people and likes to extort people for money? Are you going to call the domestic terrorist who wants to blow people up? Like, let's be honest. What happens in our culture when we associate with those kinds of people? Like, if, if it's known that you have friends who are racist... If it's known that you have friends who like to extort and take advantage of other people, if you are associating with a known terrorist, what would that do to your reputation? We destroy people who associate with such men and women. Like, obviously, Jesus didn't have a PR team. Yet, this is the crew Jesus calls to him. These are the types that Jesus says, come and follow me and be part of my closest friends and followers. So let me ask this question to you. Do you believe, I mean really believe that Jesus calls broken people, sinful people, messed up people, people with a lot of baggage and a past? Or have you constructed in your mind that Jesus calls people that are morally well-behaved? People that have like a lot of Bible knowledge and are theologically smart and sharp. People who live comfortable, successful, middle-class lives and sort of vote conservatively. Have you constructed in your mind that Jesus calls people based on strength and you end up minimizing brokenness and sin? I think it's very easy sometimes for us to construct profiles in our minds about the types of people that Jesus calls. I wonder how many of you functionally believe that the reason Jesus called you is because of your strength. Not in like an arrogant way, not in like I'm an awesome way, but you think because of career success or moral success or theological success or parenting success or marriage success. 
places of strength. That's what qualifies me to follow Jesus. That's why Jesus called me. Or conversely, how many of you think you're too broken for Jesus to call you? You're too broken to follow Jesus. You're too sinful to follow Jesus. So you disqualify yourself. And maybe you don't absolutely disqualify yourself, but for you, following Jesus means, hey, I'm the person over in the corner. Everybody else is much closer to Jesus, but I'm back here in the corner, a little too sinful, a little too broken. I'm never going to be near him. I'm never going to be close to him. What is it for you? What are the things that you tell yourself disqualify you? Anger issues, fear and anxiety, struggles in your marriage and your parenting, lust and pornography problems, drug and alcohol addiction, money problems, a lack of an education, lack of Bible knowledge. Maybe you think you're too young. What are the things that cause you to think Jesus wouldn't ever call you to follow him? Jesus calls people from every walk of life. Let's be clear, the rich the poor and the middle class, the well-connected and the forgotten, the highly educated and the high school dropouts, the young and the old, male and female, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But no matter how strong we may be, no matter our circumstances, no matter the demographic we find ourselves in, here's something that is true of all of us. We're all broken We're all sinful. We're all in desperate need of salvation. So so let us stop constructing a false narrative in our mind and false categories in our mind. Let us stop believing it is strength that causes Jesus to to call us to follow him. For you who are strong, it's not your strength. That's not why Jesus called you. And for you who are broken, if you say, I'm too broken, I'm too sinful, I'm too messy, I have too much of a past to follow Jesus, guess what? Good news for you. Jesus calls broken, sinful people because there aren't any other kind. You are exactly the type of person Jesus calls to you. You're just like the 12. Jesus calls broken people because there's no other kind. So how do we respond In our brokenness, how do we respond to Jesus' call to follow him? Well, in our passage, we see three different responses. In verse 22, the scribes and religious leaders begin accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, which is Satan. They're saying that Jesus is actually possessed by a demon, and that demon gives him power to cast out Satan. And so Jesus responds by saying, hey, you guys are terrible theologians. What you say makes no sense. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus can't be casting out demons through the power of Satan because that would be self-defeating. It's like Satan isn't that dumb because he knows if if he's casting himself out, his kingdom is not going to be able to stand against God. And so Jesus is saying, hey, your logic, well, it's dumb. But there's something darker going on here. Jesus isn't just calling them on their logic and their theology. 
He's pressing at the darkness of their hearts. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Look, there are sins that God forgives. There is not a single area of darkness, sin, brokenness, wickedness, evil, that the blood of Jesus cannot cover and the power of the gospel and the power of God cannot redeem, except one. One sin, Jesus points out, and that is the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, meaning saying that the power that was working in Jesus, so the Holy Spirit was working in Jesus, saying that the Holy Spirit is evil, the Holy Spirit is the devil. That's unforgivable. Why? Because to say that means that someone's heart has gotten so dark and so twisted and so hardened that God has given them over to their sin. It means that God is no longer softening their heart. He's no longer trying to appeal to them by his spirit. They're not going to repent. They're not going to experience forgiveness because they're never going to turn from their sin. They have gone so dark and so hardened that they would call God himself evil. And so what Jesus is pointing out here is, hey, you guys have crossed the line. You are so given over to your sin. You have so become dark and hardened and rebellious that you're never going to respond to the gospel call. You're never going to be sensitive to the spirit. The spirit you call evil, you're never going to respond to. Now, as a side note, some of you are thinking, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Have, have, I, have, have I done this sin and I can never be forgiven? Look, if you're asking the question, you haven't done it. Because people who are that hardened, one, don't care. They're never going to ask that question. They're not going to be concerned about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus experiences rejection from the scribes and the Pharisees, a hardened, vehement rejection. Jesus also experiences rejection and denial from his family. Verse 21, and then in verses 31 and 32, we see Jesus' family coming to give him a very stern talking to. They're not opposing him with the hardness of the Pharisees and the scribes, but they don't get what Jesus is about. For whatever reason, they don't grasp his identity. And so they're trying to shut him down. They're trying to talk reason, and they're trying to say, hey, come back home. Stop with the, the preaching and the casting out demons and the healing. And then we see later in Mark 6, 1 through 6, his own hometown doubts him. Hey, aren't you the carpenter's son? Aren't you Mary and Joseph's son? Don't we know your brothers and sisters? Who are you to think you can talk like this? Who are you to perform these miracles and act like you have authority? And so the people closest to Jesus, they rejected him. They missed him. They didn't understand who he was in his mission. And so Jesus experiences rejection. And so the question for us this morning is are you rejecting Jesus? In what ways are you rejecting Jesus? Now look, you don't have to have the hardened heart that would call the Holy Spirit evil, and I pray no one in here is that far. You, you may misunderstand the mission of Jesus and you think that the whole idea of sharing the gospel and the, the message of repentance and forgiveness in the kingdom of God and dying on a cross and being resurrected, that whole gospel story might seem a little crazy to you. Are you rejecting Jesus? In what ways are you rejecting Jesus? We need not be extreme to still do so. 
Do you deny and reject Jesus by seeing this whole gospel story, the word of God and the message of salvation as just a man-made invention? And does that lead you to just chasing after your own agendas and, and pursuing sin and deciding, I decide what is right and wrong for me and I live my life according to the way I want to do so? And, and not needing to repent and turn from your sin and come under the authority of Jesus and trust in him for forgiveness? Are you rejecting the gospel message because you don't believe you need to be saved? See, in Mark 2, 16 and 17, Jesus responds to some self-righteousness by the scribes and Pharisees by saying, you know, it's not the sick who need a doctor. I didn't come for the righteous, but for the sinner. He wasn't saying, hey, there's some people that are righteous and don't need me, and there's sinners and there's people that do need me. No, he was calling them on their pride, saying, you don't recognize that you need me. Like, if you don't think you need saving, then yeah, I'm not for you. But the truth is, we all need saving. Jesus wasn't just saying, hey, yeah, that's okay, you don't need me. No, he was saying, you're blind. And so if we don't believe we need saving, if we think we're good enough, we think we can earn salvation, if we think through our good efforts and our moral efforts that we're okay, then the message of the gospel is going to seem foolishness to us, and we will deny and reject Jesus. But even for us who do follow Christ, we may not deny him theologically. We may not deny him with our words, but we can functionally experience denial. There are ways that we don't trust in his power. We we don't trust in his forgiveness. We don't trust in his ability to restore. And so we live by our own power. We we live by our own self-sufficiency. We slip back into living for our own agendas and comfort. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, don't think that you can't functionally at times deny and reject Christ. We have to watch those tendencies in our hearts. Another response is from those who want to use Jesus. We talked a little bit about this last week. Verses 7 through 10, there's great crowds that are following Jesus. And they want to be healed. They they, they want to experience the power of the kingdom and have the demons cast out or their sicknesses and illnesses restored. And so the crowds are so great, they're almost crushing Jesus. Have you ever been in a crowd so big that the pressure of everybody around you, you thought you were just going to get crushed? I mean, if, I remember a few years ago, Mindy and I were down in, at Disney World like the day before New Year's Eve. And I have never been in such big crowds. It was just like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be crushed. I don't care about writing It's a Small World right now. I just don't want to die. <laughs> People wanted a piece of Jesus so badly. And so Jesus has to remove himself. And what the gospel of Mark makes clear is that these people weren't there to hear his message. They weren't here to bow down on his feet and submit to his authority, at least not all of them. Some of them were, but the vast majority of them just wanted Jesus's power. They just wanted Jesus to do something for him, for them. Now look, it's good to want to be healed. It's good to want to experience the restoration that the kingdom of God brings. But if we don't submit to Christ's authority, then we're guilty of using Jesus. How many of us can functionally live this way? Man, Jesus, I want you to give me good things. Give me financial success. Give me career success. Give me success in my marriage and my parenting. Give me kids who are well-behaved and are successful and are good at everything that they do. As long as the good things keep coming, as long as Jesus supports our comforts, 
then man, yes, I'll follow you. But we never give thought to what it means to come under his authority. We, we don't give thought to dying to ourself. We, we don't spend time repenting. I mean, deeply repenting, not from like the obvious surface sins, but from sins that are painful to admit and require deep vulnerability to confess. We never consider what it means to live sacrificial and lay down our lives in love and serve others that they may know Jesus. And so we want Jesus to give us his stuff, but we end up using him for our own agenda. For those of us that profess faith in Christ this morning, can we just be honest about the ways we do this? Can we stop playing games and take seriously the authority of Jesus. Look, there are so many messages in our evangelical world. If that word doesn't make any sense to you, in some ways that's good. <laughs> but in our sort of camp of Christianity, there is so much pointing Jesus sort of as this, you know, he's just going to give me everything I want. He's going to help, help me to have this wonderfully comfortable life. And it's all about using Jesus for ourselves. And if anything is clear in the gospel of Mark is that that is not how Jesus rolls and he will not be used. So we can reject and deny Jesus. We can try to use Jesus or we can follow him. We see people following him like Simon and Andrew and James and John and Matthew. We can put down our nets. We can walk away from our money tables and we follow Jesus we step away from our sin. We step away from our own agendas and our own kingdoms and we follow Jesus. We believe his message. We submit to his authority and we put our trust in his power. And then we live our ordinary lives in our jobs, caring for our kids, in our homes, going to school, in our neighborhoods, in our friendships, in our marriages, for kids, for you following your parents. We do all of this to bring glory to Christ. To, to follow and obey his commandments and to lay down our lives in love and sacrifice so that others may know Jesus and find their joy in him. This is what the disciples did. They turned from their old life. They turned from their sin and their agendas. They stopped rejecting Jesus. They stopped using Jesus and they followed him. That's what Jesus calls us to do, follow him. So what does Jesus do for those who follow him? Well, he works powerful redemption in your life. The gospel of Mark declares that the presence and the power of the kingdom changes everything. Peter, the coward who rejected Jesus three times, boldly stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches this powerful, powerful sermon. He faces persecution and imprisonment and torture and ultimately death for the name of Christ. Peter, who was a racist against the Gentiles, saw them as the people of God and went and preached the gospel to them and loved them. Peter, who wanted to take an, an official's head off with a sword, learned what it meant to submit to authorities and rulers and taught other people how to do the same, even in the face of persecution. John, the guy who wanted to napalm a whole village, wrote some of the most beautiful words about loving other people that we went through back in the fall. Matthew, the greedy tax collector, learned what it mean, meant to love other people, lay down his life, and he became one of the gospel writers. Over and over and over again, we see Jesus transforming people. And what is the common denominator? They all know Jesus. 
that they all are in relationship with Jesus. They're following Jesus. See, when Jesus calls you to follow him, he doesn't put you in the corner. He doesn't keep you at arm's length. Jesus doesn't have nameless, faceless followers like we do on social media. If you belong to Christ, he draws you near, closer than a brother. He loves you. He unites you to himself. He gives you his Holy Spirit, and that spirit transforms you and renews you and restores you. Oh, when Jesus calls you and you follow him, his power is at work in you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in you, bringing restoration and healing. Are you more aware of your sin and your brokenness than you are of what Jesus accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection? Are you more aware of your limitations and your failures, and your weaknesses, and you are of the power of God and the power of the kingdom at work in you. Like, look, yes, we will always be broken in this life. We will face our sin and our limitations. Let that humble us. Let that keep us from getting big heads and thinking that we're something special. However, that brokenness, that sin, that weakness, that limitation, let that drive you to Jesus. Let that remind you that you are in need of Jesus. Let that remind you that you are in need of his atoning blood, that you are in need of his power. Let that drive you over and over and over to go back to Christ and experience his love and experience his grace. Don't don't despair and get mired in your sin so that you lose hope. Rather, let your sin and let your weakness reveal to you that God's love and his mercy and his grace are real. Let your sin and your weakness cause grace to not be some abstract theological concept, but a real life-giving power. Let your brokenness and your sin and your weakness and your limitations point to you, shine a big, bright light on the fact that God is relentlessly faithful to you. Let your brokenness and your weakness and your sin and your limitations constantly cause you to chase after Jesus, trusting and knowing that his power is at work within you, that Jesus loves you and he is active to transform you and redeem you. Let us be humble, but let us be encouraged by the power at work that is at work in us. When Jesus saves us, when we follow him, he restores us. And you know what this means is, we should be so quick to repent. Like repentance should be in some ways easy for us. I know it's hard. Like I'm not trying to just say, oh, it's easy to repent. But, but here's what we do. When we don't repent, and I'm preaching to myself right here right now. I, I had a conversation with my wife on, on Saturday, Friday or Saturday, and, and I was sitting there, we were at a coffee shop and I was just talking and I just had a lot of hardness in my heart. And she kind of looked at me like, you're not repenting. And, and in the moment, I didn't want to. And you know what I was doing? stiff-arming grace, stiff-arming the power of God to renew and soften and transform me. We should be quick to repent. I mean, really repent, deeply repent, because you know what? As at the end of that, you know what Jesus is standing there with? Love and grace and mercy. So the power of God, Jesus' commitment to redeem and restore those who follow him should cause us to want to just walk in repentance and renewal and experience his grace at the deepest level. So Jesus redeems those who he calls. 
And he also sends them, the, the, the 12, whom he would call apostles. Apostles means messenger, sent ones. He was going to send these men out into the world to preach the gospel and plant churches. See, when Jesus calls people to follow him, we don't create this little holy huddle. We don't, we don't retreat from the world and just play defense and keep all of the bad people and influences out. No, we're called to go into the world and proclaim the gospel. We're called to go into the world and lay down our lives in love and sacrifice so that other people may know Christ. That's what Jesus does. He calls you to himself to follow him. He redeems you, then he sends you into the world. In Acts 4, 13 through 20, Peter and John are preaching the gospel and they're facing persecution and they're hauled in front of the authorities because they healed a man who couldn't walk. And now everybody is upset. And here's what happens. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them as evidence to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Notice the response to Peter and John. Who are these common, uneducated fishermen? They have no theological training to give them authority or status. Who do they think they are? Hey, you uneducated, common fishermen, stop talking about Jesus. Shut your mouths. Stop causing trouble. Stop embarrassing yourselves. Now, I wonder if the voice of the accuser, Peter and John, could hear, hey, Peter, you remember when you denied Jesus? Hey, hey, John, you remember how hateful you used to be? You cowards, you racists, you angry men? Like accusations coming on them. Hey, you, you know what? You're limited. You're, you're not eloquent. You're not educated. All of this scorn and shame, their brokenness just thrown right in their faces. Does it stop them? Is that what they're most aware of? No. We cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. What they were most aware of, what most defined them was Jesus. Wasn't their brokenness, wasn't their sin, wasn't their limitations. It was Jesus. This is what Jesus does for those who follow him. He takes broken, sinful, weak people with limitations and redefines them. So they're no longer defined by those things, but are defined by him and defined by his mission. And when we are caught up in our identity in Christ, when we see the power of God at work in us, when we're aware, more aware of the glory and the power and the grace and the love of Jesus than we are of our own brokenness and sin, man, that causes us to want to go and tell other people. That, that causes us to want to lay down our lives so that other people can know this grace and this love. And so let that compel you. Let the, the message of the gospel and the redemption he is work, working in your life cause you to go. Cause you to go and proclaim the gospel and share it and love other people. So the gospel of Mark 
holds up this glorious, powerful, divine son of God to whom all authority on heaven and earth belong. What will you do in light of this glorious savior and this glorious kingdom? What will you do with his authority and power? Well, what will you do with his gospel message to repent and believe? What will you do in light of your sin and your brokenness? What will you do in light of the hope for healing, forgiveness, and restoration? Will you reject it? Will you deny your need? Will you try to use Jesus? Or will you follow him and experience his power and his grace in your life and join him on his great restoration mission? May we be those that follow Jesus. Amen.